Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Things change from time to time. Something new comes along. Sometimes we don't like it, we don't want it. We're content with what we have. But the, the new sometimes is necessary. Well, last week, we talked about God is a hands-on God, that he presses us, he molds us, he makes us into something new. And we might ask sometimes, does God understand what we're going through? I just hear this song about pressing and crushing. Does God get that? Does he? Does he understand our pain? Does he understand your pain? Does God realize you've been hurt? That you may have been rejected? And does he get it? So I want to explore that a little bit this morning. Carrying over from last week where... We ask the question, did, does God just stand back and watch? Does he put us on this earth just to, I don't know, look down and chuckle at what we're going through? Is that his intention? Well, we said the answer was no. Because there is God's word that tells us he is involved. And we saw the example of the potter and the clay and God taking that clay and remolding it when it was resistant. The word from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah was called to go to the potter's house, and he saw the clay get suddenly marred, and it, uh, it turned into something that it wasn't supposed to be. And then God is showing him something there that it's getting reformed because of that resistance. So there was a good reason for God's reshaping and remolding. But yet still, the pain, it hurts. And the rejection, it hurts. Does God understand that? Let's explore that a little bit this morning. We'll be in that same book, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, looking to see, does God have an inkling that we, we have pain down here? And as we explore it, I want to go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about God walking in a garden speaks of God walking through the garden that he created in the cool of the day. And why was God doing that? Why was he walking in the garden? Is he just out for a stroll? No, he had a desire. God had a desire to commune with his creation, with his creatures, with the man and the woman that he created. God was there to interact with them. And he called out to them, where are you? Well, if we're familiar with the story, we know that they were hiding because they hadn't listened very carefully to what God had asked them. The one thing that God had asked him, 
But God was calling out to them. And why was he doing that? Because he wanted to spend some time with them. He wanted a relationship with the creatures that he created. He wanted to be involved. From the very beginning, we see a creator God who is involved, and he wanted friendship and fellowship and relationship with his creation. The relationship between mankind and God, we know that it was spoiled. The relationship was damaged by sin. The creature rebelled against creator. And the first man and woman, they found themselves in a predicament. They found themselves under the penalty of death because of their rebellion. God had been clear. God was very clear. The world's your oyster. Everything is yours except one thing. One request. Just stay away from that one tree. But they didn't. And God had said, if you touch that tree, death, you're going to die. And the, the death penalty was applied, and not only to them, but to all of their offspring. And God, that wasn't his desire to have this breach in the relationship. And from that time forward, God unfolded something to restore that relationship. He revealed a way to deal with this sin problem, and to reestablish the bond with creation that had been there from the beginning. Now this relationship God desired with his creation, which extends to us, it wasn't to be treated frivolously. As a matter of fact, God defined the relationship in very solemn terms. It was no loose arrangement. It wasn't some flimsy uh, deal riddled with loopholes, something that could be dropped and renegotiated. And we hear a lot about deals in the news, don't we? We have a president that's all about deals. He wrote a book, The Art of the Deal. He's all about the deal. He didn't like the Iran nuclear deal. So what did he do? Well, I'm just not, I'm abandoning that. I'm not going to deal with that. That's a done deal. So he said NAFTA was a bad deal. Didn't like NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. So, hey, let's negotiate a new deal. So now we've got this uh, USMCA, United States, Mexico, Canada agreement. Supposed to be a better deal. But he's not the only president who was all about deals. Ah, probably every president had to make a deal or two or three. Franklin Roosevelt had the New Deal. He was going through the Great Depression, right? So he come out with the New Deal. It's infrastructure plans and rebuild the country, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then President Truman come along, he got the Fair Deal. It's supposed to be better than the New Deal. You know, these deals, what's the deal with all these deals? They're, they don't really last too long. We're not still under the New Deal or the Fair Deal. They're stopped, they're renegotiated, they're not exactly firm. But when it comes to God and mankind, his relationship with us, it's much more than a deal. God didn't just make some loose deal. No, we have another word. God made a covenant 
a covenant which is much more solemn. A covenant is a firm pledge and promise. When one enters into a covenant, it is meant to be a contract, an agreement, an accord that is exacting and lasting. It isn't some flimsy uh, loophole riddle deal. And after sin entered the world and it interfered with mankind and God, God made a covenant, a covenant with his creation. And it was a covenant that defined the relationship. Well, God did the DTR. Not, no, there's a whole generation that understands that. And if you don't, it's no big deal. It just means God's defining the relationship, the covenant it included uh, conditions to be kept. God laid them out. And he defined what would happen if those conditions weren't kept, if they were neglected by any involved. And it was a, it was a covenant on his terms, on God's terms. And they were not negotiable. But were they harsh? Were they heavy-handed? Were they arbitrary? Were they capricious? Were these terms something that were so heavy they could never be uh, kept. No, that wasn't the intent, not at all. No, the covenant of God promised a way out of death. It promised a release from this death penalty. And that's a great thing. It's an amazing thing. God offered a way to get into right relationship with him. And he extended this covenant to mankind freely there's nobody twisting God's arm, nobody making him do it. It was freely, out of his will, out of his love. It was a covenant of love and grace that offered salvation to mankind. And what was it that he required of mankind? Receive this covenant by faith, follow its ways. And what was the, really the, the main requirement of this covenant? It's Basically this, stick with me. It's really what God is saying through it. Stick with me. Have one God. Don't go chasing after all these things that are man-made. Don't go chasing after what the world has to offer. That's false hope. It's the creature worshiping the creation. Doesn't even make sense. Have one God, the creator God, the living God. And now over time, from the beginning, from the first man, Adam, to people like Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses, this covenant that God established, it was revealed more. It was more details came out. That doesn't mean it was renegotiated. And it was administered primarily through sacrifice, which God accepted as sufficient for dealing with sin. God considered this covenant way beyond, way beyond some loose deal. It was no off-the-cuff bargain, uh, you know, some back-alley agreement. It wasn't up for renegotiation. God had established a solemn, sacred covenant. And how could he get the likes of us, his creation, to understand just how solemn 
this agreement, this covenant was? Well, God used imagery. Over and over, God described his covenant in a particular way. He used an image that we could understand. We as creatures down here on this earth could really understand. He used a picture. And what was this picture? God used the picture of marriage to illustrate the sacredness of his covenant. Now, From the earliest inception of this covenant, God wanted to express how solemn the connection was between divinity and humanity. So over and over, marriage, marriage. And I believe in every marriage ceremony I've ever officiated, I make that comment that God uses marriage as a picture of the relationship that he established with himself in creation. And that's significant. And it also tells us just how significant marriage is to God. And I want to show you some of the examples. Now, this is just a sampling of the word of God that tells us marriage is this image that he's using to portray his relationship with us. Just a few. First, Moses, when he received the covenant, when Moses received the covenant in Exodus chapter 34, God said, I'm making a covenant with you, Moses. And he told him, be careful. Don't run off. Don't run after other gods. Stick with me. And he said, if you do, you're going to have issues. And if you let your sons and your daughters marry the people from the uh, other nations, they're going to turn your hearts to other gods. And he uses the word prostitute. Your daughters are going to prostitute themselves. Your sons are going to prostitute themselves to these other gods. They will lead you astray. And that is a picture of an unfaithful marriage running off to a prostitute. These are very Stark terms. These are, God's not mincing any words. In Isaiah chapter 54, we see an image of God, the uh, groom, and Israel, the bride. And Isaiah wrote, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. There's a very clear picture. And in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, the prophet said, I give you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you declares the sovereign Lord, you became mine. Again, a picture of a man and a wife who've come together. And then there's so many images of unfaithfulness that use the picture of marriage. Psalm 106 is an example. They defiled themselves by what they did, by their deeds. They prostituted themselves. The Lord was angry with his people because of this unfaithfulness. In Jeremiah chapter 3, he wrote, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. Very clear. God is showing over and over again. And 
Finally, I'll give you this last example. The book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. We've been in the book of Hosea earlier this year. The first three chapters are all about marriage. And they picture God's relationship with his people. And it shows the unfaithfulness of the people. It shows the restoration that's possible because of love. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea was asked to go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. There it is again. And then the restoration in Hosea chapter 3. Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulterer. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Over and over again, this covenant, this solemn agreement God made with his people, it, it uses this picture, and that's just a sampling. If you've been reading along with us as we've been reading through the prophets, and now into these major prophets, you cannot help but notice how the word of God uses this image, especially when it comes to their infidelity. But on both faithfulness and unfaithfulness, fidelity and infidelity, God uses this marriage picture to say, hey, this is the, this is the covenant that I've made with you. It's a sacred bond. It's a holy bond. It's a solemn bond. It is a solemn covenant. And it's based on love. And it's based on grace. In that interaction with God and Moses in Exodus chapter 34, God said, Moses, I'm a compassionate God. I'm not, this is not an angry, vengeful, God full of wrath. No, he said, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Love, patience, forgiveness, grace. Now these are the marks of God's covenant with his people. They're the foundation for the covenant. They're also the foundation for marriage. They're what keep a marriage strong. And why is that? Why, why do marriages need love, grace, and forgiveness? Well, because no two people are perfect. I've had to ask for forgiveness many times in my marriage. And I'm glad that I have a partner who's full of love and grace and forgiveness. Love and grace, understanding, that's part and parcel to being husband and wife. And God was not instituting some malevolent dictatorship for his people. He wasn't coming across harsh and heavy-handed. He wasn't putting in place this control system so that he could just maintain some harsh control over his people. No, he saw we're imperfect. He saw frailty, waywardness. He saw that from the beginning of time with the first woman and man. So he said, hey, I'm going to institute a covenant, but it's going to be based on love and grace. And when God was faced with rebelliousness, when he was faced with wickedness and defiance and unfaithfulness to his covenant... What did he do? He maintained his character. He maintained his character that he outlined to Moses of being slow to anger, full of love and graciousness. He was patient and merciful. He was forgiving. 
generation after generation until. Now, God said he's slow to anger, and he is. He waited not just years or decades or a couple of generations, hundreds of years until enough was enough for years. All these generations, God the husband, he reached out to the wayward wife. He reached out to the wayward bride only to be rebuffed again and again, over and over. He allowed times of difficulty and sometimes those people would come back, but not for long. And ultimately, God's people, they were conquered and scattered. And at the time of uh, Jeremiah, there was this little bitty nation left, the nation called Judah. It's, it's capital in Jerusalem. It still had hope. Now, it, it didn't look very good, but it had hope. It did not have to keep being unfaithful. Now, this nation that was on the brink of collapse had hope. Jeremiah comes along. It's about to fall. And he's bringing this message from God. You know, he's pleading with these people. And he spoke of the hope they could have if only they would turn back. If only they would renew their faithfulness to the true God. And Jeremiah lamented that the people continued to reject God. They continued to turn on him. And then came the day, then came the day when Jeremiah brought this word. It's from Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'll read you two verses from Jeremiah 31. It was what we read on Wednesday, I believe. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. There's that picture again. There's that picture again of marriage. And there's this word that should be shocking. And it, it, it should stop us in our tracks. It's, it's jolting. It's striking. If any one of you have ever felt the pain, if you've ever felt the sorrow of having an unfaithful spouse who had no intention of reconciling with you, you know why this passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 is such a jolt. It is a declaration of divorce. And it's disastrous. It's devastating. This is, in essence, what Jeremiah was saying when he brought this word. The covenant, which has been described over and over again like a marriage. God is saying, we're done. We're over. God the husband is putting away the wife. No wonder Jeremiah was full of grief and sorrow. Our husband is putting us away. And he's going to make a new covenant. That's a devastating word of finality. Totally done. I'm done. 
I'm over. We're through. You have rejected me over and over again. I got to make something new. Now, how's that going to happen? There's got to be a new bride to have a new marriage. And there's going to be a new marriage. There's, there's going to be a new covenant. God declared it. As painful as it is to hear, as hard as it is to hear, there's going to be a new covenant. And God brought it about. How did he do it? He came to this earth. God came to this earth as Jesus for that purpose, to initiate the new covenant with Jesus. The old covenant is finished. Those, that, that's very difficult to hear. Finished, done, over, ceased. It's obsolete. With Jesus, there is a new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's an everlasting, eternal covenant. It's never going to come to an end. That's the promise in the new covenant. Jesus made a way for a permanent, absolutely permanent solution to the sin problem to eliminate death penalty forever. And his new covenant is, in essence, a new marriage. And that's the way the New Testament describes it. That image continues. Yeah, it was used in the Old Testament. It continues in the New Testament. A few, a few examples for you. John the Baptist, when he is describing Jesus, this is John chapter 3, verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, John the Baptist said. See, the friend who attends, the bridegroom waits and listens for him. He's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And John the Baptist said, that joy is mine. It's now complete. Why did he say that? Because the bridegroom had arrived, Jesus. He's here for a bride. He's not going to marry the old bride. And Paul wrote about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, he goes back to the Old Testament, the declaration of Adam. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He said this is a profound mystery. And all that he had talked about, and you can read Ephesians chapter 5 about a husband and a wife. Paul says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. That solemn covenant, that solemn union, it's still presented to us. Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous for you, he said to the Corinthians. I promised you to one husband, Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. There's that picture again. And it continues all the way to the end, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, John's vision. He received it from God. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. How so? Prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned and dressed for her husband. Later on in that same chapter 21, he said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. There's the picture. There's that solemn covenant. means something. It's not insignificant. It's not some flimsy deal. It's a solemn, somber covenant. Now that first covenant, which we refer to as the old covenant, it's been done away with. And in the New Testament, the writer of the letter of Hebrews, he wrote that if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, there would have been no reason to bring another. Wouldn't be necessary. But he went on to write, 
people had issues. The people had faults. And then the writer of Hebrews quoted something. And what do you think he quoted? Jeremiah 31. The writer of Hebrews looked back after writing, and that first covenant could have stayed around. But people had fault. So God said, the days are coming. I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. Quoted Jeremiah 31 directly. And when the writer finished that quote in Hebrews chapter 8, it finished like this, Hebrews 8, 12, and 13. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. God has done something new. And we are living in that newness. We have offered to us a better covenant. And it is a covenant in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, we heard from the open of this service, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. The Apostle Paul wrote, of which he wrote, I am the worst, but we all share in that. And God brought this covenant of grace and mercy in Jesus. And he brought the covenant that says, God will save you from everlasting death if you believe in Jesus Christ. It'll bring every believer to dwell in the new Jerusalem that Revelation 21 speaks of to experience the new heaven and the new earth. But before that can happen, before we can experience the new Jerusalem, we walk around on this earth, don't we? And it can hurt from time to time. I asked the question at the start, does God get it? Does he understand that we're going through pain down here? Does God understand that we have hurts? Does God understand that we've been rejected? Does God understand that we suffer in pain? Maybe you've experienced the pain of unfaithfulness in your life, the agony of a broken relationship. You think God understands that? Well, we have an assurance. God knows your pain. He understands your pain. How do we know that God's been rejected? God can sympathize with your pain. He has experienced it. He has experienced a type of divorce, the canceling of a covenant due to being rejected over and over again and being rebuffed and turned away. While he continued to model fidelity and faithfulness and love and grace and patience and mercy. And that same God still exists today. And he's still full of love and grace and mercy. And he's involved with his creation. He knows the sting of rejection. He knows the agony of a broken heart. He went so far as to come to this earth as Jesus to experience what it would be in the flesh. And in the flesh, Jesus was also rejected. And he experienced physical pain. Not only a broken heart, not only internal pain, but Jesus experienced physical pain. 
And he understands that too. You know, the narrative of God that comes through the prophets to us is that God gets it. God understands. Jesus has experienced it. And through that pain, God offers an everlasting covenant to us of love and grace and compassion and forgiveness. We are living under this new covenant. And it might feel like you're being pressed. It might feel like you're being crushed. But in that pressing and in that crushing, he can bring something new. We just have to yield to him. We have to stick with him. God said, stick with me. See, he's here to help us. He's here to help us with our pain. He's a hands-on God. Are you, are you hurting this morning? Is there anyone here that you've got something going on in your life? I don't know, maybe it's something internal. Nobody knows about it. Nobody sees it because it's a broken heart. It's a broken relationship. It's an issue that you've, you've got inside. Or perhaps you're feeling physical pain. Well, Jesus knows about that too, and he can help you, and he can heal you. He just wants us to stick with him, come to him. And this morning, we have these altars open to you, any and all of you. If you think God doesn't get it, he does. He does. He went through it. He made a point to reference it over and over and over again. And I hope you see that he gets it and he understands. I want to ask our elders to come to these altars this morning to pray and to lay hands on people and anoint you with oil as the word of God says. Is there any sick among us this morning? Let them call any elders to the church and be anointed with oil. The elders will pray a prayer of faith. And we're going to do that before we close our service this morning. If you're in the back and you can't make it up front, you can't walk, that's okay. We have some elders back in the, in the crossover aisle. Just raise your hand. Raise your hand and say, I need some prayer. And they'll, they'll come over and they'll pray for you. We've got one raising, raising a hand over, over on this side. Let's pray before you make your way and just ask the Holy Spirit to be here. Use these elders as channels of blessing of our God who understands. Father, we have asked you this morning to be among us. We said, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. We want your presence right here, right now, God, to rest upon every elder in this in this service, every elder who's in the back, in the front, Lord, use them to administer a blessing. God, may people respond, Lord. For any and all here in this, in this sanctuary who have a need, God, be it physical, be it internal, we know one thing for sure. You, Father, understand. And we seek your compassion 
in your love, in your grace this morning. Respond, mighty God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.